So my next set of questions are on a slightly different um, part of your identity, which is about the writings, about your writings and how you've spoken movingly about coming out as a gay man in South Africa. And you, you referred to this uh, in, in response to my question about the Vinerian, but you have noted in a previous interview how you often confronted a sense of revulsion and how you internalized homosexual shame and how coming out for you was a tiny step-by-step process. So if you are comfortable sharing that over and above what you've already shared, can, can you explain how that process unfolded for you? Uh, let's start quite abstractly, where I think that shame is, is a very important part of, of all of all human interactions and sometimes it's beneficial uh, sometimes it, it it leads to our guarding ourselves to protecting zones of intimacy or, or privacy but shame is also used to to restrict and subordinate people shame about women's reproductive organs for example yeah. uh, about the, the process of reproduction about women's uh, the, the, the woman's vaginal breasts mm-hmm. where uh, where they became battlefields of of male domination and supremacy but that was rooted in shame and the same occurred uh, in, in the LGBTI arena where the, the defining fact about me as a gay man is the fact that my sexual orientation my sexual disposition my erotic engagement with other people is different it's towards the same sex it's a deeply intimate thing to say but at the same time it has profound political consequences which i embraced before i turned 30 and the the lgbti movement across the world still in struggle in south africa still in struggle in india mm-hmm. and elsewhere uh, has accepted the, the the politics of 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 of, of those intimate realities so I'm talking about shame because I think it is it is so important. With HIV, the stigma of HIV is rooted in sexual shame, uh, and that leads some people to say that 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 we have to cultivate a, a, a different approach to, to to sex, one that values people's autonomy, values intimacy, values privacy, values choice, but isn't uh, incipiently averse to to sex itself. Uh, so I think that shame, uh, I felt profound shame and, and horror at the age of 14 mm. when I realized I was appalled uh, that, that I must be gay. I couldn't, I, I don't even think the word was, was used then. It was homosexual, which was a terrible word or queer or sissy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I resolved uh, never, ever, ever to accept this. And I spent the next decade and a half fighting myself and fighting the reality of, of my own, con- of, of the constitutive parts of my own being until I refuse to do so anymore. What you say does strike a chord with me as well in terms of living and growing up as a person with a disability in India and and coming to terms with that. So for me, handicap was the word, right? Like when I first heard of it, I 
I, 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 you know, instinctively associated a certain amount of shame and stigma around it. And then like growing up in high school and junior college, when I came to realize that I was sort of different in a very fundamental way, the, the uh, you know, th- there was a phase in my life when I, when, when I felt quite depressed and quite angry with the world because of how things were. So I, I, I do think that I can relate to kind of where you're coming from when you say that. Well, can I take it further? Yes. My colleague uh, with whom you've corresponded in the Constitutional Court was Justice Zach Yacoub. And uh, he is blind. He was blind from an early age. And he came from the Muslim community, which is a, a small, smaller segment of the South Asian uh, migrant population that came to South Africa at the end of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. Yes. And his... Uh, sight uh, disablement was was treated uh, as, a, as a source of shame. I shouldn't speak on behalf of Jack, but he's spoken mm-hmm. very movingly at his farewell ceremony in the Constitutional Court. Mm-hmm. He's spoken in a way that I'd never understood before. Mm-hmm. And he married outside the Muslim community mm-hmm. because, and he explained this in his speech that night, uh, as I understood his speech that night, and I, I hope I didn't misunderstand him, mm-hmm. because his parents couldn't arrange a Muslim marriage for him because he was blind. So he was seen as, in your word, the whole handicapped, and mm-hmm. that handicap was seen as, as, as a source of, 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 of social stigma and shame. Mm-hmm. So I think it's still, it's still very profound in the way we view other people, someone in a wheelchair, someone uh, with, with, with cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think that we, 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 we cast other human beings, uh, in, in terms that, uh, derive from our own conception of what acceptable humanhood is. Mm-hmm. And unless we challenge that con- those conceptions, we, we inflict stigma and shame on other people and on ourselves, of course, as you rightly said, through the internalization of stigma and shame. So uh, my next question picks up on some of these themes that you've touched on. Uh, You may be familiar with the work of Kenji Yoshino, who's um, a professor at Yale Law School, and he wrote this very... Yes, yes, he is a Rhodes Scholar too. So in in, in his book, um, Covering the Hidden Assault on Our Civil Rights, he talks about these three stages that people who... um, possess certain identities like he identifies people who are homosexual the disabled obese and perhaps other certain identities of that nature that they go through these three phases of first conversion where they are compelled to give up certain elements of their identity and then passing where um where they begin to accept it but still try to pass off as not being who they are as as being sort of the you know quote unquote normal and then converge and 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 then covering which is essentially where you do accept who you are fundamentally but you still try to downplay facets of your identity that speak to that part of your identity so for example he uh, he talks about franklin delano roosevelt and how uh, the fdr was on a wheelchair but he would often uh, sit up straight in his chair behind his desk whenever he would meet his advisors so that he could downplay the fact that he had he was on a wheelchair and instead shift the focus to his presidential qualities so i'm just wondering if in your own experience these three phases have played out 
and what do you think about them? Uh, I think they have, and I, I, I read uh, Kenji Yoshimi's book with complete delight. Uh, and what I liked about his book as well is that he spoke about being at Oxford in an utter depression mm-hmm. and uh, being almost uh, immobile in his room. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read it many years ago, but yes, for me it was also important as, as, as saying to Rhodes Scholars, you don't have to conform mm-hmm. with some norm of perfection. You are human, you are frail, uh, you are wounded in various ways. Uh, come to terms with that mm-hmm. in a way that enhances your own power and humanity and that of other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I was very impressed with what he wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that there's some validity in what he says. Is uh, covering uh, the, the third stage is based on a reading of I think a number of, of federal district court and circuit court of appeal decisions. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I, I think there is validity in, in, in what he says. I can't map them directly onto my own experience, partly because uh, when I came out, I, I came out not with a public bang like I did with speaking about my HIV status uh, many years later. That, that was with a public bang. That was on television. That was on newspaper headlines. That. Mm-hmm. That was uh, a real bang. But with my coming out as a as a proudly gay man uh, was was uh, with 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 uh, an un, unshakable resolve that I would never go back to what I'd been. So uh, I, I didn't quite experience the covering in in the same way that Kenji explains. The second part of my question is about uh, how Yoshino says that civil civil rights must rise into a new and more inclusive register. And he talks about how the entire idea of the mainstream is flawed because none of us are, so to speak, completely normal. Um, And therefore, he talks about how there is a need for the law to affirm and recognize us as the complex and contradictory creatures that we are. And uh, it would be uh, insightful to hear what your reflections are on this observation that he makes. I think I agree with it, Rahul. I think that in the very idea of, of legally ordained and regulated order, there has to be the notion of some form of human autonomy, some form of human dignity, some form of human equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that is, those are the, 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 the deepest embedded parts of the law which are often lost in, 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 in the use of the law to subordinate and isolate and ostracize and exclude people. Uh, but I think we, uh, the, the idea of progressive lawyering is to take law back to its unavoidable roots where, where you cannot have a, a, a normative ordering through a system of uh, a hierarchy of norms without some notion of equality and to explore what that means. So I think part of autonomy and equality and, and dignity is inclusivity and the, 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 the destruction of, of, of othering uh, obstructions and, and walls and exclusions. 
as part of the machinery responsible for upholding the rule of law in South Africa, what role did you foresee for yourself in that machinery? As a human rights lawyer, uh, to propound a conception of the rule of law that sought to enhance dignity and justice and equality rather than subordination and exclusion and indignity, as apartheid did, and as a judge uh, in, in democratic South Africa, to try to enhance the values of our constitution, which are explicitly transformational and aspirational, and have at their very heart uh, the ideas of, of human dignity and, and, and equality. An observation that you made in your conversation with Professor Sandra Fredman here at Oxford last Friday about your conception of human rights, and you said that one of the most powerful, uh, one of the most powerful attributes of human rights is that folks see it as a means to push back against an unfair and unacceptable state of affairs, and how that is reflective of its incipiently egalitarian potential. Um, and can you just, in concluding, expand on what you meant by that? Yes, I, I, I think human rights are an embodiment. Uh, I, I, they are controversial. People rightly question whether rights discourse is truly liberatory, whether it is uh, it simply uh, is a sop to reinforcing uh, existing inequalities. I think that human rights discourse and human rights practice as a, a, an authentically liberatory potential and an authentically liberatory dimension, which enables one to address the causes of, of, of inequality and indignity rather than just uh, assuaging them. Uh, and I think that that, 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 that is what is, in, in human rights talk, there, there can be no uh, inequality. There are obviously debates about the meaning of social rights, uh, the meaning of, 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 of legal and constitutional values. But the, 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 the necessity within human rights discourse has, 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 of, has got to be to enhance and affirm dignity and equality and, and, and autonomy and to, and to be critical of the structural impediments to realizing those equality, those qualities for every human being under the legal system. My, my next uh, couple of questions are the next couple of questions are about. Um your experience of uh, coming to terms with the fact that you were grappling with HIV AIDS and how you decided to uh, publicly disclose that. So I have two specific questions about this because you, 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 you've talked about how at the time that you recognized that you had AIDS, which was in 97, the mean survival time for someone in that position was uh, around 30 months. So, um, I mean, you, you've talked about how you thought you would not live beyond June 2000. So uh, the the first question is about how you were able to access treatment because of your economic position. And you've, uh, you, you said at a conference that you participated in, in Durban um, in 2000, and I want to quote this to you. You said, I am here because I can pay for life itself. To me, this seems 
like a shocking and monstrous inequity of great proportions that simply because of my affluence i should live when others have died so i'm just wondering how that experience of being able to access treatment uh, because of your economic status catalyzed your work on hiv and aids related issues and the interventions that you made in the following years it tied in uh, rahul with my The, the, the fundamental determinants of my political outlook has been my whiteness and the privilege that that gave me. Uh, whites only high school, whites only university road scholarship. At the time, I was elected white only up to 1976. Yeah. Uh, and then gayness, and then thirdly, uh, uh, poverty in my childhood. Then gayness, and then lastly, infection with HIV. Yeah. And it, it takes me back to the realization that that my whole life course was changed by getting into an elite high school, mm-hmm. and my life was eventually given back to me. I was uh, I was facing certain death, as you say, within thirty to thirty six months uh, at the end of nineteen ninety seven when I was severely ill with AIDS, mm-hmm. and then I could start uh, the previous year. had announced in North America that there were near miraculous combination therapies that could stop the the, the HIV virus and I started on those because I could afford to pay them on on my salary as a judge yeah. when the greatest burden of HIV lay in the African continent 30 to 40 million people who were unlike me in being black in being poor and being mostly heterosexual You faced certain death as I did, and, and it, 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 it meant that I was unable to not to join Zaki Ahmad's treatment action campaign to fight for uh, the, the, the lowering of drug prices to make ARVs available in Africa, and I was unable to remain silent mm-hmm. when President Mbeki, when he gave a voice to denialist ideas and tried to obstruct the Uh, provision of antiretrovirals in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So even though I was a judge, I had to speak out as an activist uh, out of simple human and moral necessity. The second question that I had about this was how your experience of coming to the brink of death back then in the late 90s informed your appreciation of life as a sentient human being ever since. That's a wonderful question, Rahul. I'm, I'm sitting here in Johannesburg uh, in in high summer. We've had most unusually because of climate change, we've had eight days of continuous rain instead of the uh, usual pattern of late afternoon thunderstorms. Mm-hmm. And Johannesburg is looking wonderful mm-hmm. at the moment. Uh, there were floods in parts that evaporated. And it's a beautiful afternoon, and I'm looking out onto our small garden. We're in a ground floor flat, and uh, my partner's in his study. He's he's busy writing in his his field, which is aquatic science. Mm-hmm. And I feel an enormous sense of privilege. Uh, I think life is hard. Uh, I think it's hard whether you sight disabled or living with HIV or whether you gay or straight or white or black. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's a, a a joy in consciousness, a joy in uh, ability to 
exercise the volitional aspects of humanhood. Mm. And I feel enormously privileged to be sitting here talking to you this afternoon. Yes, that's that's very beautifully put and uh, very uplifting to hear. And that 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 brings our conversation to an end. Thanks, thanks very much, Justice Cameron, for giving such full, detailed, and wholesome answers to all our questions and for taking time out for this conversation today. It's been a great privilege and a pleasure talking to you, Rahul.